Hey everyone, this year the American Craft Spirits Association is celebrating its 10th anniversary. To kick off the celebration, this podcast is part of a special series of conversations with some of ACSA's founders and first board members. Some of these guests will also be appearing at a Founders Forum at ACSA's 10th Anniversary Distillers Convention and Vendor Trade Show this February 10th in Portland, Oregon. Visit AmericanCraftSpirits.org to learn more. Thanks. The organization is getting stronger and stronger, which is exciting to see. We get more and more members branching in different, more different parts of the United States. So the more members we have from different parts is going to definitely elevate ACSA up uh, and move it forward. Because the more people we can talk to, more, more communities we're in, is going to spread the word for craft distilling throughout the United States. From the American Craft Spirits Association and Craft Spirits Magazine, this is the Craft Spirits Podcast. I'm John Page, and today on the program, Ted Huber. Ted was ACSA's first vice president, and he is the president and co-owner of Huber's Orchard Winery and Vineyards in Borden, Indiana, where he's also the master distiller of Starlight Distillery and head winemaker for the winery. And it's also worth noting that Starlight was a founding member of ACSA. Ted represents the sixth generation of the family-owned business that was founded in 1843. His sons, Christian and Blake, are carrying on the tradition, too. Distilling runs deep in the family's history, and Starlight was officially founded in 1998. Ted recently joined me and Jeff Cialetti for a conversation, and to start, we asked him to reflect on his earliest memories of ACSA. Well, it was back when uh, ADI was running fairly well, and we were trying to get a little bit of push onto the more political scene, and we were trying to figure out where we needed to be with uh, ADI at that particular point, and trying to have a uh, basically a not-for-profit voice that we could take to Washington, D.C., take to state legislators and uh, start trying to move the needle when it comes to uh, a lot of these antique alcohol laws that we've got going way, way back and start working on the FET uh, at that particular point. We needed some kind of mechanism uh, to start working on those. Yeah, so so things get going. And, and at that time, did you, you know, what were your expectations? Did you think, oh yeah, this FET thing is going to, it's going to be a breeze or it's going to be a long slog? Well, you know, we started with uh, our, 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 our Congressman Todd Young here in Southern Indiana, good, a good fellow, great guy, got to know him fairly well over time and uh, elected to Congress up there and He's, he's kind of a customer and a friend of the family here at Starlight and the winery. And uh, a bunch of us craft guys were talking about the fact that our winery and these guys' breweries had, you know, had a little uh, family small FET reduction. Why wasn't, really, why wasn't there a spirit? What, what, why was there two but not the one? And so talking uh, at that time, um, Congressman Young, and basically saying, you know, that doesn't make any sense. You know, if we want, if we're trying to build an industry, trying to get something started, get a movement started in the United States, we need some reduction or something that gives somebody a carrot out there to get started. Uh, and why not the FAT? Get us a little tax reduction, get us something, get us a movement. 
So we saw that, and then one of the things we were working in back there was, you know, say, well, you've got to go to the hill. If you're going to get this done, you know, you're going to, I'll, I'll get a bill and we'll, we'll start working on something, but we got to have something to get started. You need a mechanism to be able to go up there. And that time we had ADI, the ADI was good, but there was always this underlying for-profit uh, mechanism um, that we had. And then Discus, the Still Spruce Council, those guys were still mainly large. They didn't have a craft division yet. Uh, and there really wasn't a big movement uh, with those folks up in DC to be able to um, you know, kind of start this push uh, for an FET uh, movement. So, you know, that's kind of what I saw as one of my big focal points with ACSA to get it started was to really try to get this bus moving uh, at that particular point. So we had that voice uh, for craft, uh, both at state houses and in Washington, D.C. And what kind of pushback did you encounter in those early days of trying to uh, get FET relief? You know, obviously, like you said, with with discus this wasn't even anything that was necessarily on the radar in the beginning because they were all about the big guys initially and um and you know the you know wine and beer already had their breaks but um what what kind of pushback did uh, spirits get at that point you know back in the early days i was elected to the first uh seat at discus table for craft uh, in my very, very first meeting, I had a few seconds to be able to kind of push who I am, what I was there, and what I hope to uh, hope to accomplish there at the at the first meeting there uh, down in Florida with uh, with uh, Discus. And I said, you know, one of the most important things I think the craft needs uh, is this tax reduction, and, and the room went silent. Uh, you know, the big distillers didn't see that as anything. Uh, that they, you know, they wanted, you know, the, basically the first two things I brought to the table were very, uh, they, they were kind of nervous about, you know, going to Washington, D.C., going to congressmen and senators and asking for a reduction in our FET taxes was, you know, that was a nervous thing. And then direct to consumer, trying to start selling spirits direct to consumer. That was another thing that was kind of a, a small pushback, but those were the two focuses when um, I joined uh, ACSA's board, and then with Discus, those two things. Obviously, ACSA had no problem. That was our. That was what we were looking for. Those were some of our early uh, buy-in and priorities. Uh, where the Distilled Spirits Council, that was not part of what they were looking at. They were trying to do more with craft of working directly with state houses, state issues. There was a, they could see the craft movement starting in every state, starting to work in every state. That was a perfect agenda uh, to start spreading the word about distilling issues, um, trying to equalize beer and wine with spirits in state houses and things like that. Obviously, ACSA, that was a definite uh, one of the priorities, too, is uh, trying to equalize what we have with beer and wine there also. Can you think back to was was there a, a a time or a moment when you sort of started to feel the tide turning that you know you weren't like the the lone voice in the room anymore um you know there were more a lot more distilleries coming online um and, and just like uh this like final push i guess to to FET relief yeah, I, I can't remember the exact year, but I kind of remember the exact moment when we, we started. I think we finally hit 40 states with the craft distiller in it. 
uh, and then now we, you know, now we had 80, now we had 80 senators, uh, and we had a lot of, we had a lot of people in Congress that, that could see, you know, the potential of what was going to go on in the craft, uh, the craft movement throughout the United States, that big push, uh, to see and, and moving, moving the needle further and further, because when we first started the craft distillery, this wasn't a lot of distillers around and, it was seen as a big industry and it wasn't, uh, you know, they, they had, they had the movement years ago with wineries and then the breweries came on, but they didn't really, not a lot of people ever believed that distillers would ever get to, uh, all 50 States and everywhere. And, and most major markets, uh, with, with a distillery in them, like the microbrewery and the wineries had. And what, you know, what was, your pitch at that time, like what was your story on who you were? Because I know in those days, even now, uh, a lot of uh, lawmakers don't even really know the difference between a distillery and a, and a winery <laughs> or brewery for that matter. And, and they kind of, um, you know, how did, was, was sort of defining who you are a big part of that push? Yeah, I think so. I think one of the things that that I try to drive home in every meeting I had with, if it was a, somebody from a, from a state or somebody in D.C., uh, my state house and my and my D.C. pitch were about the same. It was that we're small, we're tied to agriculture, much more an agriculture-based distilling community uh, is what we were pitching. That we're small farmers or we're directly working with, directly with farmers or we're working with an infrastructure within a local community to grow things, mill things, uh, you know, malt things, uh, and produce things on a more of a localized uh, level rather than a large level. So that was always our pitch to, to everybody was the fact that, you know, this is going to build up a community. So many of the congressmen in, in, in D.C. had a community are, are somewhere, not in a major met metropolitan area, but a smaller metropolitan area, where a winery or a brewery was the anchor of the tourism and kind of the focal point of those smaller little, uh, either a small farm community town or a smaller little metropolitan area. And those breweries and those wineries were a great spot to go to and everybody gathered there. And so the fact that a distillery could do the same thing for these communities was, uh, that was a good pitching point and a good way to kind of get the ball rolling in the conversation about, plus the economic uh, impact of a distillery versus a brewery and a winery, the, the dollars and cents, a lot more investment in distillery than there would be a winery and a brewery. Uh, Jeff, unless you have anything else on on kind of like the FET relief, um, I think maybe we could switch over to the the early days of the competitions, which I, I think you all hosted like the first three or four. Three or four in that day, yeah, because we were kind of lucky that, uh, you know, we were able to help out. Uh, wasn't anything we went out and, and tried to get or, or anything like that. We were doing some ADI competitions and uh, here in the state of Indiana, we we were helping out our state fair quite a bit with their large wine competition too. So we kind of had a uh, our staff and ourselves kind of had a kind of a know what needs to happen around a competition of the size that this thing was when it started and and worked and through. So our facility had already hosted some of the ADI um, competitions, uh, and so we kind of had a work uh, a good work plan. Uh, for the competition. So 
when ACSA started and they wanted to go ahead and get a competition started, we had we had the blueprint already laying in front of us to help get started. Our state uh, alcohol, uh, our uh, our alcohol commission was already on board with how to do this, working with, a, again, the, the fair competition was uh, international competition, very large bottles coming from all over the world. Uh, they already had kind of some variances worked in with the state alcohol uh, licensing for products to come into the state. So that was already kind of formed and done too. So the blueprint was there for us to go ahead and host the first few uh, and get them off before it kind of went out and traveled the United States. And Jeff, you looked like you were about to say something. No, I was just going to say, um, I, I just wanted to get a sense uh, for how those things were managed and how they came together in those early years. I mean, obviously uh, now it's sort of a well oiled machine, but um, mm -hmm. you know, what, uh, you know, pulling together something like that and uh, managing it year to year, the tastings and all that, like um, was, was it chaos or was it, uh, you know, fairly manageable at that point? Uh, it was it was more manageable than you could imagine. Uh, the one good thing is Starlight Distillery is very closely located to Louisville, Kentucky, uh, just 25 minutes from downtown. And there's a lot of qualified judges that we didn't have to fly in. Uh, the Louisville area is is uh, got a lot of master distillers and people who've had a a, lar a long history of of judging and tasting and knowing spirits. So we were able to grab a lot of local. Uh, people and people who uh, were very, uh, um, they wanted to be part of it. So we had a lot of volunteers too. Uh, and so we were able to pull in a lot of people at, at basically no cost at all or very little cost because we didn't have to pay their plane tickets to come in as judges. So that was fairly, that was a pretty easy. And then our banquet facility actually holds, the main room holds almost a thousand people. So it was quite large and glassware and all that, all that stuff was fairly easy for us to do because we kind of do it on a, on a weekly basis anyway, holding those kind of functions uh, in, in our facility. Um, and we had, it was just a matter of, uh, you know, the logistics of getting the product here and onto the, and onto the tables to get to the judges. That was the most challenging. And just kind of talking about like where you're located and, and your entire operation. Uh, I was lucky enough to visit when we had our convention in, in Louisville and, you know, the drive up to your place is so beautiful. There's orchards and just the fact that you all make wine too. And you've been doing this for seven generations. Is that right? Seven, seven generations. Yeah. 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 And, and your, your complex is huge. Uh, there's like, a restaurant and you know when i was there i think people looked like people were buying christmas trees i'm just curious when you're like on a plane and somebody asks you what you do uh and they're not part of like the spirits world you know what how do you describe yourself and what you do and 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 the entire operation that you run well we're First and foremost, we're a very large agriculture entity. We're Indiana's largest fruit producer, and we're one of Indiana's largest tourist attractions. So last year in 2022, I think we cracked 700,000 visitors. Wow. Um, so that uh, we're an agritourism business. So within within this complex and farm are a lot of visitors. Like you mentioned, you were you you came out and saw the Christmas trees be cutting. You come out a couple months before that, there's people picking pumpkins all summer. 
they're going out to fields of sunflowers or other flowers or picking peaches or blackberries, strawberries in the springtime. Just we're touring, we're constantly touring vineyards um, on wagons. And I think we have something like 14 different tractors and wagons that are constantly moving throughout the property, taking people to different parts and seeing different things going on. So agritourism and agriculture is what we always lead on. Even though we're we're fairly substantial, I think we're doing close, not quite a hundred thousand cases of wine, but approaching a hundred thousand cases of wine and forty something thousand cases of spirits currently right now. So the egg side is a big part of our company, but we're also fairly large in beverage alcohol uh, also. What would you say your approximate uh, ratio of whiskey to brandy is that you produce? Uh, at this point. It's gotten, uh, it's getting further and further uh, apart uh, as we're getting older. We've been a, a brandy distillery since 2001 and only a whiskey distillery since 2013. So as we've been building up inventory in the whiskey, we've been able to uh, release more and more whiskey every year. We try to get to four plus years before we started really putting anything into the market with the whiskey side. Uh, we were fortunate enough to have the brandy distillery along for a long time to kind of help subsidize the whiskey distillery and put barrels away. Uh, and so as we've been growing and growing and growing in the, in the whiskey side, the margins are going further and further. So I think right now, if you, I'll call it grain-based versus fruit-based. Now I would say we're probably 80-20 right now, 80% grain, only 20% fruit-based right now. Even though when you drive in our driveway, you're, you're flanked by orchards and vineyards everywhere. Uh, the corn and the rye fields are kind of mixed in around, uh, but they're further away from the main retail, the big corn fields. But you're in Indiana, so there's corn fields everywhere. Uh, you can't drive here without corn fields somewhere or rye fields somewhere anyway. Uh, but when you get closer into the, the retail part of property is when it turns over to a lot of fruit. Uh, you know, we mentioned the the generations, uh, and and obviously we had uh, Christian and Blake on the podcast uh, a few months ago. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm I'm curious how many members of the family are are underemployed right now. <laughs> so currently, uh, my father passed away just a few years back, but mom's still around. Uh, not active in day to day operations by any means. Uh, but she's here most of the time, once or twice a week. She now lives off property. She doesn't live on the property anymore, but she definitely has an opinion about what we do. Uh, and she's an, she really is a wine lover. So she tends to have more conversations about the wine side than the spirit side. And then my uncle, uh, who helped my father get the winery started back in the 1970s, um, Uncle Carl's still living on the farm. Uh, and... He, uh, when he's in Indiana, he's here seven days a week. So he likes, uh, but he's more on the egg side of the company, not the beverage alcohol side of the company. So he's always overseen and take part of the of that. My generation, Gen 6, there is two of us, my partner, Greg, and myself. And Greg, like his father, lends to the egg side of the company, which I run the beverage alcohol side of the company. I do there. But our but his wife and my wife are both have uh, duties uh, in management in here at the at the company. And then the next generation down, uh, we have five of them who are working their way up through. Uh, all five now have graduated college and have gone off 
uh, and done some things and now have all returned due mostly all returned due to COVID. COVID kind of pushed everybody back home. Uh, so in, in, I think it was late 2020, all five of them are now back here at the company, kind of transitioning from the generation six to generation seven. In your previous podcast, the boys probably told you a little bit about how they've stepped back and how they're moving uh, and taking over more of the distribution. Uh, and uh, as expansions are happening within the distillery and the winery, uh, they've been helping and moving the needle when it comes to uh, transitioning uh, and sizing up right now. So you're seeing, uh, you know, a few generations down the road, do you see it still being, you know, family business, say when you get to the 10th or 11th generation? Well, you know, we're, we're 14, we're 14 generations in beverage alcohol. So we, we know for a fact by records in Baden, Germany, that, uh, that uh, we had seven generations of production farm, winery and brandy, uh, vineyard growing and apple growing in the Baden region of Germany. So it's definitely in the, in the blood, uh, in, in our DNA of, of being farmers and distillers and winemakers. So uh, I'm hoping that that continues uh, on, but you never know. But uh, our business is set up to pass from generation to a generation. That's how, that's how the company is founded and how we operate. Uh, and we're looking at a five-year, 10-year, 25-year uh, down the road when we're, when, we're, when we're doing certain products and doing certain things. Um, we're always looking to, you know, it's pretty much a 25-year plan is damn near a generational plan anyway. So we're planting vineyards that are going to be 50 years in the ground or apples that are going to be 30, 35, 40 years in the ground, building rickhouses, putting, uh, putting whiskey away. You know, we're, we're, we're not in any business that's short term. Now, everything is literally 10 to 25 years out on every plan that we're putting together. So that's always looking for us when that plan's put together, it's always looking for the next generation that will benefit from, from that. Um, and so we're always so to answer your question is definitely looking long term and as a generational shifting business. I, I'm always curious, uh, you know, when when there's a multi generational business, were were you as a younger man ever uh, interested in 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 getting outside of the family business? And then also, how did you approach that? You know, with as a dad, as a parent, uh, with with your own children. And I, uh, the thing was with, with, with my father and myself work, I actually started working in winery very, very young, uh, at a young age and, uh, had a little latitude, even, even pre 18 years of uh, drinking age when I was older, was 18. So it was kind of a thing and then turned to change to 21, uh, before I turned 21. But, uh, you know, I was always around that alcohol and, uh, my grandmother actually helped me learn how to distill when I was 15. Uh, and so there's always been this multi-generational uh, look at alcohol as being just something else that we do, not as alcohol. Uh, and this kind of moving on up. I mean, the boys were basically babies in the still running stills when they were they just able enough to start turning knobs and, and learning from, from that. So we always take the attitude that we, we want to teach everybody as young as we can. Uh, but we also wanted to go out and learn and see what's in the out in the world. But Christian probably told you in the previous podcast, he spent a nice uh, length of time in Italy, uh, working at a winery in Italy, and then uh, a couple, actually, I think three different wineries on uh, in Napa Valley. Uh, Blake 
he graduated in COVID, so his opportunities were a little bit more limited, but he did get to go out to the West Coast and work for a couple very, very well-known wineries uh, in, in Napa before he came back uh, and joined the company. So we wanted to make sure they had a, a nice uh, understanding of, of, of businesses. And so both boys got to work for very, very, very large corporate companies uh, and also family-owned companies like ourselves see the difference between corporate America versus another family-owned winery uh, that they got to work into. So that was a my wife and I's number one goal for them to be able to experience some of that before they had to come back here and work within this business model. And I'm sure they told you all the horror stories of what we did to them as kids, but uh, they had no, they, they had to work uh, with everything from being uh, a dishwasher to a farm laborer to a tractor person to a vineyard hand uh, into the person at the lowest person from cleaning tanks uh, and hoses. They had to work their way up through the company. They were never uh, allowed to start as middle management or upper management. They had to work their way uh, all the way through uh, all the way through the company. Uh, so they worked in every aspect of our company. Uh, they literally did coat check in our banquet facility. Again, they washed glasses. Uh, they were bus boys in the cafe. Uh, like I said, they were field hands uh, in, in the vineyards and, and regular fields uh, all the way now to where they're both now in, in, in lower to middle management uh, and managing processes uh, here um, at the winery and distillery now. And, and they, were, uh, they were there at the convention to accept the award for uh, best in show last year for, for ACSA's ninth yeah. annual judging of craft spirits. Uh, so, you know, when, when you look at the, the photos and social media and everything that's out there of, of your sons accepting that award, uh, what, what did that mean? I'm pretty certain that the one, I'm not 100%, I have to roll this back to Blake, but I'm pretty certain that the whiskey that won, Blake actually made and distilled. I think it's got Christian's name on it, actually. Okay, Christian, yeah. I, knew, yeah. I knew one of the two did. Yeah. Uh, Blake's won uh, the Craft Distiller of the Year for Fred Minnick's uh, Ascot Award. So both the boys had whiskeys that they made, um, pre, I think both of them are pre-21, before they even turned 21. <laughs> Uh, that they both had made, they had both had made some bourbons uh, in different mash bills and worked their way through uh, that one last year. So, uh, you know, that, that's an exciting thing to see young people take what the parents did and give it to them. And they both, they both made great whiskeys uh, and then enter the competitions and see them rise to the top like that. That's exciting for any company and any family business to see the next generation, you know, stepping out doing something a little, you know, we had the needle pointed in the right direction, I'll say. So they had, they had, they had a good start right there, but both their, both their winning, both their winning spirits last year, uh, they, they had their own footprint on. It was, it was their run, their whiskey, their barrel uh, that was entered in, in the competitions to win. I do. Th I think when, when we did talk about that with them, they were very humble and uh, talked about it all being a, a team effort and, uh, and obviously they got great tutelage from you. So, uh, yeah. Well, we got a, we, as you know, we got a great, we got a great team that's been here for a long time, uh, stretching through brandy, wine, and, and, and the, and the grain spirit. So there's a great collaboration between all three of the Bev companies that we're running right here, uh, that work day to day with each other every day. So bouncing out deals off of each other and, 
And, you know, if you're not quite for sure what the blends work in, you know, the brandy guys are bringing it to the whiskey guys, whiskey guys are bringing it to the brandy guys, uh, wine guys, we're all, we're all in there together in the plant running. Uh, and like I said, bouncing ideals off each other, problems off each other. And, and uh, it seems to work pretty well for us having, having that collaboration across it. So, yeah, I guess uh, to kind of wind down, uh, I just wanted to get any thoughts on ACSA's next 10 years. What are your thoughts for that? What are your hopes for that? Uh, where do you see the organization? Uh, the organization is getting stronger and stronger, which is exciting to see. We get more and more members branching in different, more different parts of the United States. So the more members we have from different parts is going to definitely elevate ACSA up uh, and move it forward because the more people we can talk to, more, more communities bring in is going to spread the word for craft distilling throughout the United States. And, and I think right now we're on the verge. I think we're 10 years from now, it's going to be exciting to see how many countries craft spirits are in and how many craft spirits uh, producers are actually selling international. Uh, I think that's the next big, big move for craft in the United States is, is expansion in the marketplace and, and expansion in export. Uh, in, in, in. So that's what I'm excited to see happen because getting more and more of these unique, high quality uh, whiskeys, brandies, and all products uh, that are not just big, big brands uh, in other countries to see how quality of things that we're doing here in the States. That's our show for today. Thanks again to Ted Huber for joining us. You can learn more about his family business at huberwinery.com. And in case you missed the conversation with Christian and Blake Huber, you can find it on our website at craftspiritsmag.com. We'll be back very soon with more conversations with ACSA founding members and early board members. Until then, thanks for listening, and cheers! Cheers!